45 years, that makes me an antique. <laughs> Greetings from that old church downtown where they still tuck their shirts in. <laughs> if I come back again, I'll promise you I'll, I'll leave it out so I can be right at home. Sure, certainly appreciate the music and the uh, band and the uh, singers today. It's just great. If I had a voice like that, I wouldn't have to preach. The old church, First Baptist Church, sends greetings to you, your mother who planted you. She's 107 years old today. Actually, not today, maybe a few months ago. But uh, I would have to say that when we planted Antioch, there was some postpartum depression. Especially some of the people. They grieved the loss of all those young people who came over here to help plant and some of those seniors that came over here to plant Antioch. But I'm here to say that the old mother is healthy. She's doing well. Lately, the growth has been young adults, young families, and the church has certainly turned outwardly, focusing outwardly, uh, perhaps healthier than she's been in many, many years. I think of third John where John writes and he says, it gives me great joy to know that my children walk in the truth. And it is good to come back and see that this uh, plant from First Baptist Church is anchored in the truth, speaking the truth, holding to the truth. When we asked uh, the director of Northwest CBA years ago, who would you recommend to come on staff and help us turn the church outwardly and then eventually plant a, another church in Central Oregon? Uh, the name that came to the top and the only name was of Ken Weitzman. So I am here to commend you for having him as your pastor. He's a great man, gifted in leadership, a visionary person. You know, if he had, had we forced him to stay at uh, First Baptist, I think we would have choked him. There wouldn't be a Kilns College today. We wouldn't have had the Justice Conference because he has that vision. He has that ability to lead. And it was such a joy and a privilege to serve with him those few years when he uh, worked there at First Baptist Church. But it's good to come here and, and see the work of ministry here. But today I want to work through the book of Acts, chapters 6 and 7. Now don't panic, 7 is a really long sermon, but we're not going to go through that sermon blow by blow. But in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we talk about uh, some of, I think, what are two most difficult words in our vocabulary. Those of us who are followers of Jesus and belong to a church, two words that are, we have the most difficult with. And it's not death and hell. Uh, we don't talk about hell very much anymore, and most of us don't want to talk about death. We'd rather not. Uh, the two most difficult words are not theology and heresy. We hate heresy, and a lot of us are afraid of theology. It sounds too deep. It's not even Calvinism. Some people hear the word Calvinism, and they're ready to fight, and others are ready to, to love. I think the two most difficult words in our vocabulary are simple words, easy to say, difficult to do, evangelism and witnessing. Those are, I think, the most difficult words that we have in our vocabulary. Most of us would say that, you know, when it comes to witnessing, I'm just not gifted. I just don't have that temperament. I, I could never be a Billy Graham standing up before multitudes of people preaching the gospel. It would scare me to death. And I could never be like C.S. Lewis, an apologist with a brilliant mind who, who's not intimidated by the most brilliant minds, who can stand and, and give a good defense for the Christian faith. I could never be like that. I can hardly read C.S. Lewis and understand him. I have to figure out what he's saying. I could never be like him. No, it's, it's for the gifted people. I could never be like Pastor Ken Weitzman. A man that's so gifted. 
God has gifted him so uniquely that he can stand before a crowd of people without notes and speak extemporaneously and make sense and, and not be intimidated and be able to defend the faith in a very intelligent way. I could never be like Pastor Ken. I could never be like the staff here at Antioch. They're, they're the ones that are gifted. Uh, they know how to do evangelism. I'm just, I'm just a lay person. I'd rather just do my witnessing with my life. And that's good. But I want to talk to you today about a, an ordinary person who was just a lay person. He wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't one of those 12 that Jesus chose to follow him and then handed the leadership of the church over to them. But he was a volunteer. But he's an ordinary man in the church in Jerusalem, but he becomes an extraordinary witness. And his name is Stephen. And he only appears in these two chapters in the, in the entire scripture. And yet a tremendous man. A man who had an extraordinary witness, even though he was just an ordinary person, as you might say, sitting in the pew uh, in the church. So his story picks up in chapter 6. And when I look at him, I say, here's a man that he was an, a bold apologist for the gospel. All of chapter 7 is Stephen defending the faith before people who have accused him falsely. And he uses the Old Testament to defend the faith. So he is a tremendous apologist, I would say equal to uh, C.S. Lewis or Pastor Ken. But he's also uniquely in the church in that he's the first Christian martyr. Now there have been many who have given their lives for following Christ. There are many today giving their lives for following Jesus. They say there have been more martyrs for the faith of Christ, faith in Christ in the last century than all the previous 19. But he's the first Christian martyr who stands and gives his life rather than compromise his faith. And I think he's a unique witness in that his witness is in three dimensions. He, first of all, witnessed with his life. He was a man that his life was a witness. He was one of the seven men chosen to take the meals on wheels to the widows in the church. The church in Jerusalem is growing so rapidly by the time we get to chapter 6. Thousands are being added to it by the week. And now in the administration of passing out the food to the widows, some have been neglected. And unfortunately, most of them have Gentile surnames, and so there's a, a charge of prejudice. There's a charge that's going to divide the church. And so the apostles with wisdom challenge the church. Look among you, find seven tested men, and hand this ministry of caring for the widows. It's an important ministry to them that we might concentrate on the preaching of the word and prayer. So that's what happens in chapter 6. And notice what he says there in chapter uh, 6, verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about his witness of his life, it says that, first of all, he was full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. He was a man that the church could look around and know he was trusted. He had been tested. He was a man of integrity. Verse 8 talks a little bit more about his personal life. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and they began to turn against Stephen and challenge him. So the first thing I see about Stephen is that he was a witness with his life. Everything he did exemplified Jesus Christ. 
And the way he could do that was what it says there, full of the Spirit. What we want to do today is we want to, as we talk about Stephen, do bookends. Let's look at Acts 1.8 as kind of a cover, and then 1 Peter as kind of the closing of the book. And then we'll come back to those at the end of the sermon. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus has raised from the dead, and he's preparing to go back to heaven. And he tells the disciples in verse 8, you will, receive the pow- you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. That's a statement of fact. It's not a command. He doesn't say here, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will receive power and you must be my witnesses. It doesn't say you ought to be my witnesses. It says you will be. What I learned there about Stephen is the reason he could live such an exemplary life and be the man that he was was because of the Spirit of God in his life. But we also want to put his bookends on Acts chapter 6 and 7. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. In 1 Peter 2, Peter's writing to some people who were Jewish believers and now they're suffering some persecution and they're tempted to turn around and go back. And he's reminding them of who they are here in verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's a passage that says that we should live in such a way that people see our good deeds and the result is they glorify God. The other verse I want to piggyback or bookend the sermon on is 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So keeping those three verses in mind, let's go ahead and talk about Stephen again. The reason he could be such an effective witness with his life was because of the Holy Spirit in him. It says again, full of truth, full of grace, full of the Spirit. So that Stephen, as he went about doing good and doing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, his life was a witness for Jesus Christ. Late 1970s, early 1980s, Cairo, Egypt, that time about 7 million people. Uh, The Muslim culture is designed in such a way that the best jobs go to the Muslims and Only the bottom-end jobs go to the people of other faiths. And one of the bottom-end jobs was to be a garbage collector. Not with a garbage truck as we think today, but a donkey with a cart going around collecting the garbage, then bringing it to the dump and sorting through it and finding anything that might have value. Back then there was a man who was a garbage collector, and as he was sorting through the day's garbage, he found this watch, a watch that was valued for over $1,000. And here's a poor man living at the bottom of the pile. He could get rich in his life with that thousand dollars. He could do well. But instead he looked and there, there was a name engraved on the back of the watch and so he hunts the man down and he returns the watch to its owner. And uh, the man was shocked that this poor man had not kept the watch. And the response was, my Christ told me to be 
honest even unto death. The man who owned the watch responded later, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told him I see Christ in you. Because of what you have done, your great example, I will worship your Christ. He became a follower of Jesus. He was ordained into the Coptic church and planted a church right outside the dump in Cairo. There's a man who was a witness with his life. That simple thing of being honest, taking the watch back, caused another man to become a follower of Jesus. He was a witness with his life. But there was another dimension to Stephen's witness that we see here, and that's in chapter 7, a witness with his lips. Again, chapter uh, 6, verse 8, Stephen, a man full of grace and power, did wonderful signs and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose. And what they do is they will accuse Stephen now of, of preaching against the temple, preaching against the land of Israel, and preaching against the law of Moses. They had this theory, many of the religious leaders, that God was a local God only, that he only lived in the temple. That was the only holy place in all the world, the temple. And that God only worked in Israel. He never worked outside of Israel. Everybody out there didn't count, only Israel counts. And that he always and only worked through the law of Moses. And we see that they're trying to debate him. Look at verse 10. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. He's a great orator. He's a great apologist. All of chapter 7 is Stephen's sermon. They drag him off before the Sanhedrin. Think about your group here today. If there were just uh, 70 of you instead of the hundreds that we have here, and you're sitting there as the Sanhedrin, you're the chosen leaders of the land of Israel, of the faith of the, Judy, of the Jews. You're the religious elite. And now you're like the Supreme Court, the religious Supreme Court. And here's Stephen, this deacon, this volunteer in the church, dragged before the Sanhedrin to defend himself of these three charges. And what we find in chapter 7 is Stephen preaches a magnificent sermon as a great apologist for the faith, a great defender of the faith. Using their Bible, the Old Testament, he refutes every one of their charges. Their theory that God only lived in the temple only cared about the temple. He points out that that's not true. There, in chapter 7, verse 48, he says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? He says that, look, even Isaiah says that God is too big to dwell in a building. In telling the sermon, or sermon or preaching this sermon there, he goes back to Moses. He said, don't you remember the time that Moses was in the desert, in the Sinai desert, not in the land of Israel? And he sees this burning bush, and he, he comes up there. Curiosity draws him up. And God speaks to him. And remember what he said? Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. There's ground that's holy out there. It's not just here in Jerusalem. As to the uh, theory that God only works through the, uh, uh, in the land of Israel, he, he gives a story about Abraham. He says, look at your father, the father of the Jewish uh, religion, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. Where was he when God called him? 
And what uh, Tom, uh, Stephen will say is that he was living in another land, Mesopotamia, way over there, right, where we now call Iraq and Iran, that area. And God calls him not in the land of Palestine. And then he calls him to come to Palestine, and even though he comes to Palestine, he never owns a square foot of the land. He finally buys a, a, a cave to bury his wife in. That's all he has. And as to the charge that, that God only works through the law of Moses, God never works outside of the law. Where was the law when Abraham was called? Abraham was not circumcised when God called him. Moses had not come on the scene yet to give us the, the law. So he refutes every one of their charges. And he does it with courage and with boldness. He's a witness with his lips. So that these men who are charging him and trying him could not defend themselves. Now because they could not support their position, they could not stand against him, they turn against him. And that brings in the third dimension of his witness. He was a witness with his death, with the last breath in his life, with his, with his blood, he was a witness. In fact, the word martyr simply means witness. You can be a martyr without dying. The Greek word for martyr simply means to be a witness, either with your life, with your lips, or giving your life. Stephen becomes the first true martyr in the fact that he gives his life. But he is a witness, even in the end of his life. And I really think that this is where our, our greatest chance to witness is. You know, I can say all the right things in this life. I can be trained and give all the right answers. But when it comes down to the last moments of life, those are the important moments. That shows who I really am deep down. Who am I? Those final words, those final statements. Uh, St Stephen is a man who was a tremendous witness, even in his death. His final vision. Notice chapter 7, the last part of the chapter. Verse 54. <clears throat> Excuse me. What Stephen has done <clears throat> after uh, sharing about the Old Testament, about Moses, about Abraham... He turns a little brutal, 54, verse 54 of chapter 7. He says to them, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, okay, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? <clears throat> they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the coming of Christ. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. That's Jesus. You have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. Call that pushing back? Pretty, pretty harsh, right? Stiff-necked, uncircumcised. And then he says, the very law you claim to keep, you break. Their law was that you could only, <clears throat> you could acquit somebody in one day. You could have a trial and pronounce them innocent in one day. But to declare them guilty and pass a sentence took two days. This only took about an hour. They hear him, they charge him, and they rush on him to kill him. That's what will happen when he says that. Verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, 
I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, that's better, <laughs> I hope. Witness here with this last vision. What did he see? He looks and he sees heaven open. That would be unbelievable. Hard to understand. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Everything else tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated? Because his work is finished. When he died on the cross and rose again, the debt that you and I try to pay by ourselves has already been paid in full. The fact that he's seated at the right hand of the Father says that the work of redemption is complete. But as Stephen is dying, this first martyr of the Christian faith, he sees Jesus standing. Someone said that God or Christ is standing in defense of Stephen because Stephen stood in defense of Christ. What a tremendous man. The last thing he does is he sees Christ. And then his last words, last words are so important. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Does that remind you of anybody else? Just before he dies, he prays. He doesn't pray that God would judge his enemies. But what is his prayer? That God would not hold this sin against him. Sounds to me like Jesus from the cross, does it not? His last words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Last words tell what the real character of a man is. The last words of Stephen tells me that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of truth. And those last words reminded us so much of Jesus. He was a witness for Jesus. Stephen was three-dimensional in his witness. He witnessed with his life, his very example. People saw what Stephen was and they, they gave God glory. He witnessed with his lips. He stood before the Sanhedrin and defended the faith. And then ultimately he witnessed with his life. He was willing to die. You and I as uh, believers believe that Jesus is coming again, right? Right? Yeah, okay. You're still holding to that truth? Good. <clears throat> Someone is predicting that he's coming in, I think it's May 28th or the 22nd. You better find out. It's pretty soon, right? I'm, I'm betting against the man, but it could. When Jesus comes back, and if he was to ask you who attend and are members here at, first, or at the Antioch Church, yeah, I don't think he would ask you this question. Did you enjoy the music? No, I did. I really enjoyed the music today. I don't think Jesus would ask us, did you enjoy going to Antioch? Did you enjoy the fellowship? I think if he was to ask us a question, it would be, are you on mission? Are you carrying out the mission I left you to do? And that's where I want to come back to those bookends that I gave us at the beginning of the message. Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will have power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, 
to the ends of the earth. How can a man like Stephen, just one of these seven deacons, become such a bold witness? The answer is in that verse. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will have power and you will be my witnesses. Not that you must be, that you ought to be, you will be. How could a man like Stephen be so bold as to be willing to die and then pray in his last breath, Father, forgive them? The Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2, one of those verses that we used as a bookend to the message. 1 Peter chapter 2 again. <clears throat> Live your lives in such a way that people see your good works and honor your Father in heaven. That can't be done apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter 3, that verse, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Now let's think about that phrase. In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. When I have done that, when I have come to that point where I say, I'm not going to live my life for myself. I'm going to yield to the leadership of Christ in my life. At that point, I am filled with the Holy Spirit. When I yield to Jesus and let him run my life, I am yielding to the Holy Spirit. So what he's basically saying in this verse here is be filled with the Spirit. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, it is better, if God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. If we were to go on and finish that chapter, what Peter is saying is that you and I have been called to follow in the steps of Jesus. We're to do what Jesus did. In fact, the whole book of Acts is tied up in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I'm writing to you about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. The whole story in the book of Acts is that people like you and me, ordinary people, through the power of the Spirit, are doing what Jesus did and teaching what Jesus taught, finishing his work, carrying it on, on mission. And that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, if Jesus came back and asked you, did you like the music? Yeah. But I think what he really asked us is, are you on mission? And the mission that God has given to you and me who are followers of Christ is to be his witnesses. Do I witness with my life? Do people look at me? Do my neighbors look at me? Do they see somebody who's different? Different enough that someday they might ask, what is it about you? I've watched you go through hard times. I've watched you go through good times. I've watched you in the good, bad, and the ugly. What is it about you? Do I witness with my lips? If I'm yielded to the Holy Spirit, he will give me the boldness and the words to speak when somebody asks, what is it about you? Tell me about your story. And all you need to tell about is about Jesus, what he began to do in your life and is still doing in your life. Tell how he's changed your life. And then should that happen, that someday you would be one of those called upon to die for the faith, could you, would you, they say there have been more people martyred for the faith in the last century than in the previous 1900. People are dying for the faith, dying for their faith in Christ today all over this globe. We don't see it here in America. 
I noticed on the religious page, I think it was yesterday, day before, whenever that comes out in the Ben, ben Bulletin, that talks about the Coptic Christians and the conflict that they have with the Muslims in Egypt, especially now with the government changing. It's violent. That little minority of 10% of the population is suffering tremendously, and they're, and they're fighting back and they're protesting. And then right below that, there was a story about the church in China, one of the underground churches that have lost their building, and, and now even when they gather, they're persecuted and harassed. Who will win the day? I do not think the church will win the day when we fight back militantly, when we protest. But when we live as Jesus lived, and when we talk as Jesus talked, and we're willing to die for our faith, that's when people pay attention. It's that church in China that's suffering and still loving and still speaking the truth that will win the day. It's that church in America that will win the day. It's churches like Antioch. When you and I who are followers of Jesus begin to live the life so that people ask the reason. When people ask, we have the courage to give the answer. And if we have to die, we die well. I've been at the bedside of many believers, professing believers who have died. It's a tremendous testimony when somebody can come to that last stage of life and though they love being here with their family, they're not afraid to cross over because to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, which is far better. That person who can die well. So our challenge today is to be three-dimensional witnesses. Witness with our lives. Witness with our lips. And if necessary, witness even in our last breath by dying well. I guess the question is, am I willing to be poured out? Am I willing to be like Stephen? Lord, do whatever you wish. If it means death, so be it. So that I might bring glory to him. Make sense? You at Antioch have a tremendous opportunity because of your size and because of the, the energy that you have to be a transforming agent in our culture. Every one of you can be like Stephen because the same spirit that gave him boldness can do it for you, can do it for me. The same spirit that gave him the grace to pray for those who were killing him can give you the grace to be a gracious person at work, at school, at home. And should we have to die as a believer, the same spirit can give us the boldness and the grace to die well. We can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Again, the whole book of Acts is a story of what the Holy Spirit is doing today in people like you and me to complete the work that Jesus began. Acts isn't finished. You're still writing it here at Antioch. Be his witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to walk with you, to know you, to love you, to serve you. And for the fact that you did not abandon us to serve in our own strength and our own weaknesses, but that you have given us the spirit and he has given us the wisdom and the boldness and the grace to be your witnesses. Help us to be that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.